Welcome to the ASC podcast, Cytopath Pod. Join special guests to highlight ASC activities in cytopathology education, advocacy, and research. everyone. This is Gülis Barkan. Uh, I'm the past president of the American Society of Cytopathology and the uh, section editor of our journal, uh, Journal of American Society of Cytopathology's uh, social media uh, section. And so today we're doing a combined podcast with our Cytopath pod with the JASC. And we have three wonderful guests all the way from Nashville, Tennessee. Let's uh, introduce them. Uh, Dr. Kim Ellie um, is uh, one of the faculty over there at Vanderbilt University. Uh, she finished her undergrad at MIT and medical school at Tulane. Uh, her residency was at Wake Forest, followed by a fellowship in Vanderbilt, where she currently is on faculty as an associate professor, signing off both surgical pathology and cytopathology and emphasis on head and neck and endocrine. Uh, she is the uh, medical director there, as well as the uh, director of the Cytopathology Fellowship. Now, she also volunteers on the ASC. She was a member uh, on the Cytopathology Program Directors Committee. Our second guest is Dr. Vivian Weiss, who also finished her uh, residency and fellowship at Vanderbilt University. She's currently an assistant professor there. Uh, she became interested in LGBTQI health, uh, and pap smears when she was a fellow and started publishing on this topic, uh, really to increase awareness of this challenge and healthcare disparities. She also volunteers for the ASC and she's the chair of our program innovation committee. And last but not least is Dr. Margaret Content, who finished her residency and fellowship also at Vanderbilt and stayed on as faculty over there as well. She's an assistant professor and practices at Tennessee uh, Valley Healthcare System VA, where she, where she directs the cytology section. Um, and she is a member of the Government Affairs and Economic Policy Committee of the ASC. So welcome all three of you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Good to be here. What a wonderful trio, my goodness. Something wonderful comes out of, uh, from Vanderbilt, I can see totally. Um, so uh, let me tell you why I actually reached out to you guys and wanted to do this particular podcast with you. And I must say, you guys saved me uh, from a potential lawsuit, believe it or not. Um, so sometime um, in the past couple of months, I was signing out and I had a pap smear. And when I looked at the pap smear, there were relatively smaller cells, somewhat higher NC ratio, but there wasn't the regular intranuclear, um, you know, grooves or nuclear grooves. It just didn't look like a high grade, but it was screened as such by one of our cytotechs as well as our fellows. Um, something didn't feel well, feel right. So I said, well, tell me a little bit more about the history of this patient and all this and that. And oh, by the way, the patient is transgender came out. And, uh, the, you know, the patient is on testosterone, you know, high dose testosterone. And I'm like, wait, wait, let's just stop for a second. Something doesn't, you know, look right. Maybe it's because of the testosterone. Let's just, you know, 
hit PubMed, see if there's anything published about it. And sure enough, there was. And uh, yours, your article came out as one of the first articles that came on the transgender pap smears. So reading that, I'm like, guys, look, I said something was funny. This is not right. It's because of the testosterone. This is not a high grade. And so I signed it out as negative. Um, but I really liked the article. And it just was such a nice article, a very flowy article that I'm like, we need to do a, a journal club on this because if we didn't know. Odds are, you know, the fellows didn't know, the cytotechs didn't know, the residents didn't know, and we need to raise awareness for it. So we did a uh, journal club on that too. So, but thanks to you, it was uh, really, really helpful for me. Um, but enough about how it helped me. <laughs> Tell me the story of how did you guys um, come up with this idea and write this beautiful review article? I think our experience, uh, Gulis, uh, is very similar to yours, actually. Uh, when I was a fellow, um, we had a case that um, had, you know, higher NC ratio cells, very similar. Um, we were really struggling with it, and, um, and we didn't have the appropriate history. There was some concern, you know, should we diagnose this as um, ASCH? It was screened as high grade, and then um, we ended up finding out that this was a pap smear from a transgender male, and, um, and that's kind of what got all of this started. We realized that there um, is a tremendous need to describe and make everyone aware of the morphologic challenges um, with LGBTQ plus uh, samples and that, you know, these samples uh, need a little bit more um, attention from all of us. And, and um, so that's how we got started. I published this with a great uh, friend and collaborator, uh, Dr. Brian Adkins uh, in 2018. And then um, I will let my colleagues uh, take it away. Uh, the department has just done um, an incredible job here and it's continuing to do so. So I think then building off of Vivian's experience with uh, the PAPS in transgender men, we had a situation come up with our colposcopy conference where we had a question about what should we do for cervical cancer screening in people who have a neovagina and so they don't have a cervix, but they do they still need to be screened for HPV-related cancers? And so the particular scenario that came up was a patient with MRKH syndrome, which is a Meyer-Rokitansky-Kuster-Hauser syndrome, and it's a developmental anomaly where you don't get, um, you get um, Mullerian dysgenesis. And so many of these patients undergo uh, surgical correction and have um, creation of a, a neovagina. But it's really not clear for this patient population who is sexually active, uh, potentially, and potentially exposed to HPV, what the appropriate screening would be. And we, we also see a similar thing in transgender women who have undergone um, uh, gender-confirming surgery and have a neovagina. It's unclear what the appropriate screening strategy is. And then when we get the sample in the cytology lab, how do we evaluate these samples? What are the adequacy criteria? Um, 
there are different surgical techniques. So what we discovered when we looked into this question from our wonderful OBGYN colleague a little bit more is there will be neovaginas that are created from uh, squamous lined um, epithelium. And there are also uh, types of surgeries that use um, uh, generally uh, portions of the sigmoid colon. So you'll get glandular epithelium. And when we looked at these samples, should we be calling it adequate when all we have is, is glandular epithelium? Um, does that really fit in with the Bethesda? So we're, we found ourselves in uncharted territory and thought we would spread the word uh, about basically some of the, the diagnostic challenges that we had encountered at, in our own practice as we were sure that other people were encountering um, similar challenges with uh, patients who are transgender. Exactly. <laughs> and then tying that in, we, we see a good number of anal paps here, and we have some challenges um, in the differences between high-grade dysplasias and anal paps and in cervical paps. So in preparation for the ASC, we got together and we're throwing out ideas for potential sessions. And this one was um, close to our hearts and, and eyes and minds. And we thought, well, let's come together and make it multidisciplinary, include the cytopathologists as well as the OBGYNs. And then we looped in um, one of the internists who's, our, who's a lead on the at the Transgender Health Clinic. And it just really came together nicely for us and really um, helped inform our practice. Well, and, and we want to say a huge thank you for the ASC for giving us this platform, not only for the, the presentation at the annual meeting, but then subsequently we were invited to submit the review article to JASC to, again, just just spread the, the word about these challenges that we were facing diagnostically. Very true, very true. And I've heard very, very good things about your course too. So I really hope that sometime yeah. we'll come back to the ASC and actually everybody will have a chance to uh, listen in on this very important, but not really uh, known about subject. Uh, we, it's, it's nice that you actually wrote it so that you can share your experiences in this particular area. Uh, so here's a couple of questions. Um, so one of the issues uh, that I could think that you could run into, um, of course, it depends on your IT uh, system, um, but do you run into any EMR-related issues um, when, you're, when uh, the clinicians are ordering the pap test? And if so, how are these handled? Because in your, um, so anybody who listens or reads to this, uh, reads this uh, particular article should go and look into box one, and I'm not going to tell what's in box one, but um, it really um, highlights one of the things that needs, a couple different things that needs to be done for the roadmap. The question is, how do we handle the IT issues? So that's a that's a great question, and I think that we still continue to have challenges with IT issues. Um, often patients are not assigned their appropriate gender in the electronic medical record. So we've had multiple situations where we see a PAP with 
profound atrophy in a young patient with a feminine sounding name and they're listed as female on the requisition and then going in and reading the note, they just have not updated the the patient's name. They haven't updated their gender marker to indicate that they are a transgender male. Um, and the, the other thing is we have a challenge for patients who are non-binary, that is, don't identify as either male or female, that there really isn't a category that our EMR can, can put that patient in. So I don't know if either of you... <laughs> Well, it's it's a little unfortunate, too, that despite our efforts, we're still not seeing clarity on our requisition forms. Mm -hmm. And according to the techs and they're kind of, you know, the gatekeepers, they're the first people to, to, to screen these pap smears. It's still not clearly indicated on the requisition slip. And it's only thankfully, though, it's because we have brought it to their attention that they now know, as Dr. Compton mentioned, when they see an atropic smear in someone who's young and not postpartum or not postmenopausal to question it. And often they'll see a disconnect on one side of the requisition, it'll say male, and on the other side, it'll say female. But we have to do our part, and we are a little behind in updating our requisition slips. Um, and that's something that we need to do to really expand um, the, the box to include gender and options um, beneath that, as well as for, is the patient on hormone therapy? If so, how long um, have they had any gender affirming surgeries um, and things like that? So we really do have to do our part um, as you know, um, people who are in the place to modify our requisition forms. And this will also trickle into clinical path because the use of testosterone affects things like hemoglobin and cardiac troponins. So there's a lot of people, a lot of stakeholders here. And I think provider education also is a very important piece of the puzzle. We're lucky enough to have this wonderful multidisciplinary colposcopy conference that we do every week with our OBGYN colleagues. And that's where we really got the genesis of a lot of these ideas. And so it's great seeing the way that they pass that information along to their residents. And so everyone is aware of why we're asking these questions. It's not just a box to check. It's really very important to the interpretation of the PAP test to have this information at our fingertips. Absolutely. And it's important for the listeners to understand that, you know, you guys are at the cutting edge of this. Vanderbilt is one of the uh, really uh, leaders in this particular area. And despite that, you know, there are still pushbacks from IT and it's not all clear and, you know, all, okay, let's switch this with a magic wand sort of thing. Mm. So if anyone is listening and saying, well, I can't do that, we're all in this together and we all need to work on this in order to make some changes in our requisitions, in our EMR, and really in the way that we think too. Uh, tell us a little bit about um, the Transgender Medicine Program at Vanderbilt. How is it organized? Who runs it? And I'm assuming that it's uh, interdisciplinary because you know, you're, you're, I mean, it's so nice to have pathologists involved with this, but then there are other fields that are also involved. So how does it work behind the scenes? That's a great question. So I, I think we are very lucky to be at a center that puts so much 
into making it a, a good patient experience for transgender patients. So we have an overlying umbrella of the, the Vanderbilt University Medical Center program for uh, LGBTQ health. And that's the broader umbrella that oversees this. Now, the transgender health program is overseen by one of our co-authors on the JASC paper, Dr. Shane Siebold-Taylor. And she is a family medicine trained physician mm -hmm. uh, who has a, a panel of, I believe, several thousand uh, mm -hmm. transgender patients here in, in Middle Tennessee. And it really shows how high the demand is for these types of, of services for patients. Um, uh, the, the other wonderful thing that they do at the transgender program, as you mentioned, it's very multidisciplinary. So it's a place where people can get hormone therapy, surgery, um, as well as uh, counseling, um, and finally can receive comprehensive medical services for other health problems, including your uh, annual um, or your, your age-appropriate screening, uh, such as pap tests, colonoscopies, cancer screening. And this is very important because there are multiple studies showing that LGBT patients frequently avoid medical care due to a uh, concern for discrimination. So providing a welcoming atmosphere in which patients can not only get gender, uh, gender affirming therapy, but also just receive regular crucial health care and screening services is really so important. Um, some other things that they do, uh, there's um, a nationally recognized program within the Center for Transgender Health that's called the, the Trans Buddies Program. And this uh, is made up of volunteers who can work with patients who are new to the process and help guide them through what is really a very complicated health system. So I, I think Dr. Uh, Shane Siebold-Taylor has really made a, a wonderful program here for the, the patients in Middle Tennessee. And she, yeah, she's, she sees about a thousand and she thinks our numbers are probably Much at about, about 2000, um, but, but it's hard to kind of capture that data because of issues with the EMR and the uh, um, uh, RLIS systems. Um, and she really makes a point, as as Margaret mentioned, we have, we there are so many issues with getting, um, creating that welcoming environment for these individuals and instilling trust in us um, it, to return. So the treatment is really individualized, and um, you know, as far as you know, and it's clearly not a one size fits all. And for patients less than thirty, she often co-tests because she can get one other piece of information. And if she has an HPV test that's negative, she can then have that patient come back in five years because it's so traumatic for them, truly traumatic. And she was, I've been communicating with her and she said so many of the patients, there's so much anxiety that they really, really refuse to have the exam. So for those that she's able to do that, um, 
she's trying to make it as as good of an experience as it possibly can so that these people will return because this is kind of her one chance. And she's really good about um, having these follow-up emails, not hesitating to come back or to reach out to her with any personal questions. She's really good about the pronouns and educating us on that we're going to misstep and that's fine. Um, And we shouldn't use things. And I think this is important too, if we're going to be doing FNAs on some of these patients, you know, to um, using the the words like preferred pronouns, we really should drop preferred because it's, it's implying that, you know, you have the option not to use those pronouns. So just say, what are your pronouns? Mm -hmm. Um, Very matter of factly, things like that, that I think um, because as pathologists, we don't interact with patients that often we may not that might not be at our forefront. And to not say things like, this may be awkward. No, we don't want to to make these patients seem uh, more uncomfortable than they already are. Just so to walk in and say, I'm Dr. Ely. I use she, her pronouns. Um, I see that the medical record has you listed as Michael. Is that how I should call you today? And they'll say, no, Emily. And I'll say, great, Emily. It's so good to have you today. So I think that's a piece that we can work on in our department. We have scripts for other um, encounters that we have with patients, and this is definitely one that we need to incorporate in our our, um, training. And I think um, that brings up a great point about uh, when I came down south, you really start to get the calling patients, ma'am and sir, hammered into you. (laughs) That's actually something to to avoid. You don't want to make that assumption when you're entering the room with a patient. You don't want to make any assumptions. Um, And it's, it's a good thing to discuss at the beginning of a rotation with a new trainee who will be going on these fine needle aspirations. Uh, and just to really incorporate it into your curriculum with your pathology residents and normalize that this is a part of patient interactions and something that they'll encounter in their clinical practice. And and I think um, Dr. Compton and Dr. Ely um, uh, bring up a really good point that, you know, when we first started this, this multidisciplinary team, you know, wasn't um, what it is today, right? And And we have learned so much through the process, not just about the morphologic challenges, but just the challenges and disparities in general and and how to provide, um, you know, good, adequate, hopefully wonderful care um, for all patients. And, And, you know, we don't always realize when we get a specimen on our tray what it took for that specimen to get there and and the sacrifices that were made and the challenges and the struggles that maybe that patient went through um, to give that specimen to us. And so if, if we don't then do due diligence and make sure that we have all the right information for this patient and, and we're diagnosing it appropriately and we're aware of the challenges, you know, a specimen that might have taken so much effort to collect um, may not really get the the same care and focus. And courage, so much courage. So much courage, yeah. exactly. And, and so I think that's something that when we originally were thinking about morphologic challenges, it's something I certainly wasn't aware of. And, and so even when we think about adequacy, um, for some of our specimens, right? I, I, I didn't realize 
at the time, you know, what it took sometimes to get a specimen from someone who's been on testosterone for a long time and the hurdles that that patient has gone through so that that specimen can sit on my tray and, and maybe we need to reevaluate adequacy in those situations. Definitely. And, and there was yeah. a, a good paper in JASC recently regarding yeah, that many- the Kansas group. Yes. Thing. Yes. Yes, that many patients- who have been on long-term testosterone te therapy will have low cellularity specimens. And for someone who went through what, what could be a, a traumatic experience, getting that specimen collected to just then have it rejected as unsatisfactory really yeah. is not, um, is not providing really not focusing on the individual patient. Absolutely. It really is. So if we can provide some information such as HPV testing, that can help guide the, the care of that individual. Mm -hmm. Further risk stratification for sure. So, so what you, what I hear you saying is, is it important to know the scientific part of this? Like, you know, if somebody um, is retrophic, don't say unsats, look into the clinical history for our listeners, uh, but also perhaps, you know, have the empathy skills of how did the specimen come to us, which is a perfect segue of me asking you, how do you teach your trainees, your fellows, your residents, they might, you know, come in just for a month at a time or a week or two weeks at a time. Um, about transgender medicine. And this is a little hard. In, in my practice, yeah. I find it difficult. To, the, the hardest part to teach someone is empathy skills. You mm -hmm. know, if you have it coming along, it's very easy. But to evoke it is sometimes a little bit harder. Um, the other things are a little bit easier, like the technical issues, the AMR and whatnot. But in general, um, what would be a good way, and this is for our listeners who are perhaps program directors, um, how should we teach our trainees so that they're aware of these issues? Well, I think, you know, starting at the scope when you're going over pap smears um, and you know, once you've, we've gone through the morphologic changes, how do we diagnose low grade? How do we diagnose high grade? You know, mention the fact that at Vanderbilt, we're going to see, you know, there's, in the U.S., there's probably 1.5 million transgender individuals, which is an underestimate. And in our practice, we're going to see these patients. So this is a pap that could have come from a transgender, or maybe we, we do know that. And to give the background, you know, the, the risk uh, the likelihood of unsat is higher, and it's this unsat diagnosis is going to cause a lot of issues. The patient who has had to overcome this obstacle to sit potentially in a room where there are other women and they feel out of place to have to return there, um, that and to uh, overcome that dysphoria is a, is significant. And um, to get them to starting to think about the individual patient and their, their, their issues. And we talk about that. And that's also part of our evaluation process, as I'm sure it is for years, just not, not only to be racially sensitive and age sensitive, but also uh, gender sensitive. So those discussions are ongoing at our microscope. And then clearly, when we have our um, colposcopy conference once a week, um, and our trainees and our fellows are there, this is also part of the conversation. And I'd love for you two to chime in. Sure. So one thing 
that we also do is during our didactic sessions on cervical cancer diagnosis specifically address um, transgender and non-binary patients on testosterone and what those samples will look like, as well as the background for why these samples are, are important. Essentially, to, to get residents to start thinking about patients as individuals and that there's such a complex array of gender expression and sexual experiences out there to, you know, not overlook that and, and not make assumptions about anybody's, uh, you know, behaviors or gender identities. And I'll, I'll also say, I really think that the medical school has done a lot on this front. Mm -hmm. So there is a student group, uh, Vanderbilt Pride in Medicine, and they have advocated to integrate a lot of lectures into the first and second year of medical school and also have arranged for Q&A sessions with a local high school organization, the Students of Stonewall, to have um, LGBT youth come and talk about their experiences with the healthcare system, with the, the medical students. And finally, um, there's a certificate program in LGBT health that the medical students can um, achieve. And, and this is all part of the VUMC program for LGBT health has really helped put this together. With, within our own department, I'll also speak to the importance of having a um, diversity, equity, and inclusion coordinator in embedded in our department. Mm -hmm. I think because we're not seeing patients face-to-face, -face, sometimes pathologists can forget about that element of practice. Mm -hmm. So having a designated person within your department who um, is coordinating these types of educational events can be really beneficial for a pathology department. Mm -hmm. And, yep. and I'll, I'll just read. Yes. 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 Okay. One of our faculty. Very good. Good. And, and I'll, I'll just reiterate, you know, I think actually teaching um, the importance of, of LGBT plus health um, is actually uh, the first key step is for the the pathologists, the providers, um, to be aware and to know that it is important to teach. And, and it, it actually is so, um, uh, it flows so nicely with all of the rest of your teaching because you can introduce those topics on so many levels, on the morphology, um, specimen collection, how are specimens collected? And, and so I think, um, but, but if the um, educator is not aware of the importance of, of this training, yeah. um, then I think that's where um, it, it it's all gonna be falls. A breakdown. Yeah, that's right. where the breakdown occurs. And we get into so many other exciting topics, like, for example, validation of HPV testing for self-collected samples, mm, that's right. uh, other, other laboratory management topics that we can discuss with our trainees, which is really yeah, exciting, really very broad. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and I think it's helpful that we have the undergraduate campus here too, because it kind of dovetails with the activities that they may have. So we're fortunate to be actually on part of a, a undergrad campus. 
that definitely helps. Seems like yeah. the, the undergrad campus is doing a lot from what Dr. Compton was saying, that there's a lot of activity on their front. Their end. Yeah, they have a Twitter page I was looking level, at. You know, perhaps and, there is not so much. Um, so, you know, if any program were to start some education, you have to start from somewhere, even if it's biteable mm -hmm. chunks of something. Um, mm -hmm. If any of our listeners are listening to this and saying, well, you know, it would be so nice to teach our residents or teach our fellows or get some little program, like where would they start? How should they, you know, go about this uh, using maybe your uh, paper as a springboard or Definitely. what other methods? What should they do? Well, I think the paper is definitely a good a good point to start having a journal club. Um, to discuss it and make that conversation, put that conversation out there that it's not, uh, it's something that we can talk about. Mm -hmm. um, and inviting our clinicians for other departments, internal medicine, OBGYN, even pediatrics to come and share their experiences with us. Terminology we talked about today is a big one. Um, what words are appropriate, what ones are not appropriate to start there because I'm, I feel like our, our colleagues, our clinical colleagues have that experience and it just really um, rounds out what we, we are, our practice as pathologists. Um, it just rounds out what we have to say. So I would say using the article as a springboard, having a journal club about it, inviting your clinical colleagues to different conferences that you have um, is a place to start. And I'm curious to see what my colleagues think. Well, and, and I would also say probably your most important step is engaging with your patient population to see what their needs are. So I'm coming at this from a place of privilege. I'm white, I'm straight, I'm cisgender. And so I need to, to see what those patients need from the healthcare system to be able to meet all of their needs. And the answers may not be what I'm what I'm assuming. Uh, and they can be very different from individual to individual. So I, I think an important point is that we can't really lump people into broad categories. There is so much diversity within the LGBT spectrum, that uh, it's very important to engage with your patients and your clinicians to assess what those needs are. Yes, definitely. Uh, so you can't put a pigeonhole everybody into pigeonhole. the boxes and you have to understand. And furthermore, I mean, even I like your um, table one in your uh, article where you go over the different terminology and when we were doing the uh, journal club a couple of the individuals actually very courageously raised their hand and said you know I did not know that a and that's understandable and that's and okay. that's great like to create that environment too, with your trainees where they can ask that question absolutely and because, yeah uh, definitely sorry. that's a great great step Yes. So, yeah, after reading that and everybody was on the same page, uh, and then that's how you sort of create the empathy skills, just like you were saying Peace. from mm -hmm. there, like, you know, this is the patient where, where, what does the patient want? 
where are they coming at? How can you help the patient? If you're there as a physician to help the patient, you have to understand them at different levels. Um, and of course, this goes into the DEI at multiple levels and, um, you know, your understanding of that too. So, um, so a couple of other maybe questions. Actually, the most important thing is, what do you think would be some important take-home points for our listeners? from your talk, be it be um, your uh, medical knowledge, information, uh, be it be other um, take-home points. If they were listening to this, um, first of all, they should read. <laughs> they should download your article and read it. Uh, but what should they take home and remember? So I think uh, Dr. Weiss made the great suggestion while we were writing the article to have a box that had the take-home points in the article. <laughs> I told you, right? Hey, listen, when you're busy and you're trying to skim something quickly, those boxes are key to make sure that your readers can find the yeah. key points. So um, Dr. Compton did an excellent job <laughs> of making summary boxes kind of throughout the, the I article. love them. Love them. <laughs> well, I think it's, it's really about awareness that you will encounter patients uh, LGBT patients in your practice and to be aware of those morphologic changes that you can get with different hormonal therapies, the um, morphologies of neovagina specimens, um, and different types of surgeries that, that people can have leading to different specimen types. And finally, that um, anal paps are not exactly analogous to cervical, cervical paps. paps. We didn't talk about and that. And so yeah. there, that's that's a huge topic. Yeah, it is. <laughs> but I, I think that, um, you know, there have been many papers that are starting to come out that are showing that often you have fewer abnormal cells, yeah. that the samples are more highly keratinized, that the abnormal cells can be smaller, um, and so to really be aware of those morphologic features of the, the different specimen types when you're interpreting those at the microscope. And I think, too, we, we have to, you know, I think what we're hearing, too, is being flexible, that we, we have to be flexible in our, in, um, with our patients uh, of different choices, different lifestyles. And then you know, when you're training residents, uh, and, and I'm like this, I like to say, okay, this is the treatment for X, but knowing, hey, we don't have national guidelines for some of these things. And to get them to start thinking, hey, yeah, that, that makes sense. You know, why would we say negative for squamous epithelial lesion if a woman has an uh, a neovagina made from an intestine? You know, just to kind of get them thinking, because, you know, we're all type A and we may be studying for the exam or the rise <laughs> and we really get to that place of like, hey, you're right. This doesn't make sense. Yeah. Um, you know, what what can we do? And to even like reach out. I think we're fortunate. We have clinicians that are very easy to reach out to. And I reached out with the ID department about anal paps. Um, and part of it was because we um, have to, our instrument that we do for HPV testing that we need to validate for the anal paps is, is, is declining. And so we don't, don't have the time right now to validate for anal paps, so we're sending them out. But when we do bring it back, 
what data do our clinicians know? And that's going to be also institution dependent because we happen to have less than 10% of our patients are HIV positive. And the, the co-infection with the HPV is 90%. So they don't stratify here. So you can't use like some of the algorithms that we're learning for the cervix. We don't, they don't stratify atypias based on whether they're HPV positive or negative. We go, they go directly to endoscopy regardless of HPV status. So um, you really have to know where you are and what the practices are. Um, and, and they feel like what the information that they want from HPV is the 16. So um, it, it's important to know your environment and to reach out and ask them, hey, what would you like to see in the future moving forward? Are you happy with this? Are you happy with the detected, not detected? Um, tell us about our population. Um, tell us about your clinic. How are things, how are things um, arranged? Um, and, are, and, and knowing- Yeah, are there unmet needs exactly. in your clinic? Exactly. Exactly. As we start to see more and more of these. And it really makes for, I think, you know, having this experience has really made for some great conversations across the microscope. It really has. Um, and, and I, I, you know, I think everybody's been really receptive. They're very curious about it. It's really opened a lot of minds. Um, and, and, you know, it's just thank you for, for inviting us to share this experience. Well, thanks Hopefully. for sharing the experience. <laughs> You know, and I think our hope is the more institutions and practices that have these conversations, um, the more widespread um, awareness is. I think we can hopefully um, push to getting some guidelines and, and exactly. to, to, to improving the way we yes. report and adjust how we describe and satisfactory rate. You know, all of this, I think, is is so critical, you know, to, to help um, uh, to improve some of this. The disparity that's there now, and and you know, do we need to have a different sort of threshold for um, inadequacy and for certain patient populations or patients on certain uh, hormone therapy? And and so I think that's just one example of of the many areas that I think need um, to be addressed on, on a larger scale. And so the more of us that come together, um, the more practices that have these discussions and publish uh, where there is need. Um, I think the more likely we're going to get kind of change. Well, and and that's one of the reasons we're we're just so grateful for the ASC uh, for providing us this platform to discuss this issue because when we've talked about it at the meeting after we published our article in JASC, we've had so much engagement and so many people coming up to us and saying. I had that same experience at my institution. I didn't know how to handle that situation. And you start to have people engaging on social media, um, just, you know, talking about these issues. So it's it's so, so good to, to have this platform for discussion. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, so, you know, I hope this is a very good start of the discussion and it continues. And hopefully uh, those individuals who are involved with the Bethesda system reach out to you and others to maybe uh, change some of the guidelines uh, for for the, you know, upcoming Bethesda, which I'm sure there will be some, uh, you know, little tweaks uh, on these patients who are transgender uh, and so forth, so that we have better ways of thinking about it and better ways of teaching, uh, you know, our young. And honestly, for those individuals who are writing um, 
test questions. Perhaps if these went into test questions, <laughs> then it would force everybody to learn about it, to teach about it, right? So, so anyway, so here's the message, the not even secret message to <laughs> power about that. Um, so that's very nice. I, I thank you all very much for well, doing this. And um, I, I really appreciate taking uh, your time from your busy schedules and really highlighting this very important aspect. Thank you very much. You are so welcome. Thank, thank, thank you, you, Louise. Thank you to the ASC. This has really been great. Wonderful. Thank you. Thank you for listening to CytopathPod. You can reach ASC on Twitter at cytopathology or via email at asc at cytopathology.org.